0: Now, especially with there being such a call for anti-racist education and everyone wants to be, you know, diverse and inclusion, equity and blah, 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 like, it's great, but we're finding that a lot of the work that Black people have already been doing in these spaces are getting brushed off.
1: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the second season of our podcast, What Are You Going to Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. My name is Dani, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Haifa as well. In each episode of this podcast, I will chat with an early career researcher who will share her academic journey with us. If you'd like to know more about our guests and get PhD tips and advice, we invite you to look us up on social media with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled with the number two. We also have a website with the same name. In this episode, we have a guest who is a visionary and world changer, and her name is Brianna A. Baker. Brianna is from a small town in North Carolina and has completed a BA at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in psychology and in interdisciplinary studies specifically African-American Community Resilience and Liberation with honors. She just started her PhD this academic year at the Department of Clinical and Counseling Psychology at Columbia University, even though she currently is doing that remotely due to the pandemic. She was a research and policy analyst at Duke University, a graduate research assistant at Columbia School of Social Work, and currently a public health analyst at RTI International. I noticed that you're wearing the shirt with the letters on it. I like that a lot. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Brianna volunteers as a community health education coordinator at NAMI for a while already, where she coordinates psychoeducational events in her hometown area, focusing on topics including race-related stress and discrimination, caregiver burden, and coping with chronic illness. Brianna is very active on Twitter and the co-founder of Black in Mental Health, and she runs a blog and YouTube channel called Becoming Dr. Baker, where you can follow her journey through the PhD. In this episode, we hope to give you a taste of what it has been like for Brianna so far. So welcome to the show, Brianna. I'm very glad to have you with us.
0: Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad. I've
1: been following you on Twitter and YouTube for a bit already, and I'm happy to meet you sort of in person, even though it's through Zoom. But let me pour a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, that's my favorite amaretto, so we can really get started.
0: (laughs) I wish I could have one of those tonight.
1: (laughs) Right, because with you, it's still morning. So what are you having today?
0: Today, I am drinking coffee. It's called Bustelo. Um, it's a Cuban coffee which I I think it's brewed in Florida I'm gonna say Miami Florida Um, or at least that's where they're based but I love it it reminds me of warm weather Uh, (laughs) and it's a dark roast it's really tasty and it's something I drink every morning so (laughs) okay good tip I'll take that
1: into consideration (laughs) (laughs) all right so if we are both we both have our fuel I think we can get started with some short questions okay Cheers. Cheers. What do you consider to be typical student food?
0: Oh, man. You know, this question is so hard because (laughs) being at home where there's no students around me and not being in the atmosphere of the university, I don't really know what people eat, but I do know (laughs) that I eat all the time on camera in my Zoom classes, anything from boxed macaroni to pretzels to um in in the southern united states we eat pimento cheese which is like uh i don't really know how to explain it kind of like a chunky cheese with like tomato bits in it sometimes it has bacon um i eat that a lot people make fun of me for it but i I am such a cheese lover so yeah anything anything like that
1: okay so that's what we'll see you eating when we're on zoom
0: yes yes
1: i saw on twitter that you treated yourself to mexican food cheer wine and RuPaul's drag race and that seems to be a popular
0: (laughs) show among most of our guests but what is cheer wine cheer wine is another like regional kind of drink i guess that's really in the southern united states as well but it was here in North Carolina is where it was born, so we love Cheerwine, and it's a it's a soda, like a soft drink um, that kind of, people say it tastes like root beer, but I don't think it tastes like root beer at all. It tastes like a cherry cola, kind of. It leaves like a red, your tongue will be red after you drink it, but it's a dark drink. It looks like a Coke or something. <laughs> That's very different from what I expected following its name, <laughs> but
1: it's not a wine,
0: right? It's not a wine. <laughs> One of the
1: questions I had uh, was, do you have or would you like to have a pet? But now that we started this conversation and we opened our cameras, I already saw that you had a really cute dog.
0: Yes, Zola is uh, my best friend. Yeah, her name is Zola, Z O L A. I We named her after a show called Grey's Anatomy, where they adopt a child and the child's name is Zola. We did the same thing with my dog. She was from a shelter. <laughs> So it seemed fitting and she's uh, she's like my best friend. We do everything together. If I go anywhere, she goes with me. She's always in the room with me or else she scratches at my door. So yes, I would love to have a pet. I already do. <laughs> That's sweet. Cool. Uh, I often ask
1: what sports our guests do um, as physical activity really helps me a lot to stay sane. But what do you recommend as you're studying psychology? to do to maintain mental health in grad school and of course this is a short mm-hmm. question so I'm not asking for the ultimate answer yet but more of like <laughs> a tip or something that maybe helps you right
0: yeah um something I do like just in the when I'm working so like while I'm working I always have a candle lit like all the time my parents laugh at me because I burn through so many candles but it makes me feel good like getting to pick out the scent and kind of set the mood for when I'm studying makes me feel a lot better about all the tasks that I have to do. And then aside from actually studying, I have gotten really into these fitness videos on YouTube uh, called Pop Sugar Fitness. And they're just like these random videos they will have like ab workouts or legs or full body. Um, some of them do like Latin dance or like Caribbean dance. They're just all over the place. And they're super fun. They have a timer of 30 minutes. So you'll never spend more than 30 minutes exercising, which for me is good because I I don't have a gym. So when I don't have a gym, it's hard to motivate me to do physical exercise. But 30 minutes is nothing and it goes by super quickly.
1: Okay. Yeah. And I recognize that I do some Zumba and I think out of all the sports that makes me happiest simply because of the music. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. uh, And another question is, describe your home office or how you'd like to improve it.
0: (laughs) My home office has gone through a lot of improvements lately. (laughs) I... So, um, and I'll probably get into this later, but I moved back to my parents' house um, where I'm currently doing my PhD studies, and I hadn't lived here in a long time, and it hadn't been decorated since I was about five or six years old, so when I moved back, my walls had, like, butterflies and pink and purple stickers all over them, and it was very fit for, like, a a five-year-old girl, (laughs) so as soon as I got here, I worked with my brother to repaint the walls and get some better furniture and just kind of, you know, update it a little bit. And it also serves as my work area. So I have, I bought this desk on Amazon that kind of looks like a hospital tray, but it it works for right now. (laughs) And I have that against the wall um, with my ring light and my candles, of course. So it's getting there, but my next investment is a comfy chair because right now I'm using like a trendy bar stool and it kind of hurts my back yeah (laughs) oh it's important to to take
1: care of your back and to have a good chair that keeps you going for another maybe at least 10 years of sitting in the same position
0: (laughs) yes
1: yes exactly (laughs) okay well I'm looking forward to the pictures on twitter when it's done
0: yes I will definitely share you know I will (laughs)
1: Okay, so having to get to know you a little bit better, I think we can start about your academic journey now. And usually I start asking really at the beginning. Uh, You chose to do a BA in psychology and interdisciplinary studies, and I'm not really from that field. So I was wondering, what is interdisciplinary (laughs) studies, actually?
0: Yeah, it was a cool opportunity that a lot of universities here have. Not every university, or sometimes it's it's under a different label, but... Basically, when you look at the list of majors that are already pre-created for you to choose and you don't feel that one kind of fits what you want to do, you can create your own um, through a bunch of different departments. So I wanted to do something in public health and my university didn't offer undergraduate public health degrees. Well, they did, but they, you had to specialize in either health policy and management or nutrition or biostatistics, which I was like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, but I wanted to do something more community oriented. And the other thing about our public health school is that you had to apply your second year to get in. And I didn't even learn about public health until like my third-ish year in school. So I kind of missed the deadline, but I still wanted to do something like that. So I created my own major using different classes. I think it was eight classes total, but different classes from psychology, sociology, global studies, um, African American, diaspora story studies. And I think that's it. And philosophy. Uh, um, So I combined those (laughs) and tried to make a major surrounded by like community health and. And liberation, kind of psychological liberation.
1: All right. Uh, How come you were really interested in doing that specifically and then also combine it with psychology? Yeah,
0: that's a good question. I mean, I um, had had an internship that exposed me to kind of community wellness. Um, It was like a public health internship. It was really funny how I got it because I actually didn't get selected um, initially. And then this spot opened up like very last minute and they took me on and I was like super scared, but I ended up loving it working at like a hospital type community center. And it just exposed me to the different health disparities that existed within my own community. I'm from a small town, so to see just the gaps that I wasn't even aware of. And I had been here for, at that point, 20 years. And I had no idea. I think um combining that with my love for just, like, spiritual and mental wellness, it made sense. I don't know. It just clicked. Yeah, it just clicked. It did. Focusing on Black people for me was really important because where I grew up was very, it was very white, it was very homogenous, not only racially, but like in mindset. Um, and so I wanted to kind of break that because I never felt like I fit in. So I I wanted to focus on something that I loved and bring that to the community, rather than just waiting, once I graduate to go leave and do it somewhere else. I was like, might as well just do it here. <laughs> so yeah, I guess that's how how it happened.
1: Okay, so uh, you were doing the, the BA, that went quite well. You also finished with honors, right? Yes, yeah. And then you describe yourself today, including on your website, becoming uh, Dr. Baker, uh, you describe yourself as a visionary and a world changer. How does pursuing <laughs> a PhD help you to reach that goal?
0: Oh my gosh, in so many ways. I mean, I knew I wanted to get a PhD just because, like, seeing... My professors, I knew I didn't want to do exactly what my professors did, but I I liked that they were so knowledgeable in a certain area. They had such good training, especially in psychology, um, to be able to help others because it is, I mean, it's a helping profession. I love that. And when you talk about changing the world and having a vision where you want people to live their best lives and improve their life quality and life trajectories, it seemed like a PhD in psychology made sense to do that because um, I feel like if you can liberate someone's mind in the way that they think, then you can liberate how they perceive the world. And that is somewhat easier to do than changing the world, I guess, altogether and changing all the structures that that limit us from living that best life in the first place to focusing on the mind and focusing on perception was something for me that I felt was more manageable and more fun because I, I like picking people's brains. <laughs> um, so in pursuing a PhD, especially in psychology or in clinical counseling psychology, I felt like I'd have the flexibility to do that as well. I think that I could work, you know, at a university if I wanted to, or at a community health center, kind of like I was doing beforehand. I had seen psychologists in that arena too which i really liked um you can also do consulting which i thought was fun and just helping organizations figure out how they can best meet the needs of their employees and of their customers like all of those sorts of things you just get to help you get to help everywhere when you're a psychologist and i really like that about it
1: for me the uh the whole journey was very different i think than it was for you because uh i started doing my ba in europe And then I took some time off and I traveled a little bit. And then I decided, well, then I'm going to do a master's and it's one or two years. So it's, you know, maybe something in between that's going to help me find a job later on. And then from that out, I rolled from my thesis research into a PhD. But Mm. for you, you finished your BA and then you already had a PhD on your mind. I don't think I even fully understood what a PhD actually was when I was doing my BA. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Very different. So it's nice that you already have this idea in your head of what you want to do and you just go for it. So would you elaborate a bit on the process of getting accepted to a PhD program and now being accepted to
0: Columbia? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, and it's funny that you say that too, because it's like, I feel like PhDs, at least for what I was doing or being interested in psychology, no one talks about entry level positions in psychology. Like, No one. I mean, you kind of go in when you declare your major as psychology and undergraduate, they're like, okay, so you're going to graduate school because there's no jobs for you if you don't have have a higher degree. So I knew I'd have to get a a master's, I feel like, at the least um, to do what I wanted to do because I did know that I wanted to practice and that I couldn't necessarily do that, you know, with just a B.A., Although I'm, I'm learning that you might be able to do something similar, <laughs> but I I guess I did have that on my mind for the longest time. And then the process of getting accepted, that's it's such a long story, so get ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> I, I am trying to figure out where to start, I and I didn't prepare because I wanted to speak very organically about that's the journey exactly and everything. That's exactly the point, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I, um I I guess just like, I can relate to not knowing. It's weird. It's like I knew what a PhD was. I knew I needed it. But knowing all the steps to get there, I wasn't as sure of. And I think I was a junior. So my third year of undergrad where, or actually, no, before then. Before then, I'd had my eyes on a PhD a little bit because I had actually applied to a program called McNair Scholars at my school, and I think other schools have them here in the US as well. But it's for underrepresented students to kind of get all the information they need to pursue a PhD right after completing their bachelor's. So for me, I guess that sounded perfect, because that's what I wanted to do. And I applied and I didn't get it. And I remember being so bummed because I felt like they were telling me I didn't have what it takes to be invested in. And to go... And get a PhD like I saw the other applicants or the people who got accepted and I was like man and one of them was like a a friend a close friend at the time too so I was just like wow okay like she has what it takes but I don't and that was really hard on me. Rejection is always difficult and I think
1: there's also something special about that first rejection right when you were most excited about something and most invested in something and then you don't get it and it's
0: very frustrating. Yes Exactly. And I mean, I can go, sorry, I can go so many different ways with this. But it's just with that first rejection, I think I wrote about this in one of my blog posts, just about how I feel like I grew up kind of priding myself on academic achievement. And I hadn't really, I had experienced rejection maybe once in an academic sense, but it wasn't that significant but I knew I was like, okay, I'm still smart. I like have all these accolades or blah, blah, blah. And then when you get that real rejection that actually hurts, it kind of knocks you off a little bit. Cause you're like, I thought I was good at this thing. And I'm going to talk about this later when I got <laughs> rejected from the actual PhD. But yeah, I do remember being a little shook up from that. Um, but I had to just move on, I guess, and still had the idea of getting a PhD. Uh, one of my best friends had also applied for that same program. She was a year older than me, and she hadn't gotten it either, but, like, she was still thriving, so I was like, okay, you know, like, maybe it's possible for me to do the same. So you never thought, maybe I'm not good enough, I'm just going to quit? Not at that point. Definitely later. Definitely later. (laughs) Oh, no. At that point, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. This is (laughs) going to be such an interesting story, (laughs) but... Uh, yeah, at that point I didn't think about quitting because I don't know, something in me still felt like I could do it. And I was like, you know, cause you're able to just kind of write it off. This is just some silly program. They don't want me fine, whatever, you know, this isn't the actual PhD. This isn't anything. So what I don't get the training maybe from the specific program, but I can still get it elsewhere, you know? So I thought that I could still do what I wanted to do. So after that, I I guess fast forward 2 years into my senior year, I'm still interested in the PhD and I decided to apply. <laughs> Not knowing much about the actual application process. And when I look back on it, like I didn't really have anyone who um I'm sorry. I'm trying to <laughs> think about how much information to disclose right now. <laughs> yeah, you should I mean, didn't you have anyone to turn to or did you
1: have No one to ask like, Hey, how did you do
0: that? Or, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story because it's one that ends up kind of being a a small story of betrayal (laughs) when I think about it. Yeah, I know. I know. It's going to be a book. (laughs) Um, so I did have one professor that I reached out to and who helped guide me in the process. And I had asked, you have to ask three professors, I think, to write you a re- letter of recommendation when you apply. And so I felt that I had three strong letters of recommendation. And then I had to take the GRE, which is the, the admissions exam, to get into these programs. And I didn't do poorly, but I also did not study like I should have at all because um, no one told me how hard it would be. You know, I kind of just assumed it'd be like any other test study for a week or two, you know, kind of make sure you know the basics and then see how you do. Um, So I took that my senior year as well. And yeah, I did okay. And I applied to five schools. They were mostly my criteria for getting into these schools. You know, you should apply, I feel like, based on your interests, which I did to an extent. But it was more for me about location and (laughs) more about I think it was location. And also I looked at the scores because you can look up how how many people they accepted before and what the previous applicants scores were and stuff. So I kind of matched my scores to those schools and saw like, you know, do I compare well, like based on my scores alone? Do I have a good chance of getting in? So that was kind of the way I did it that first time. Trying to guarantee myself admission almost. It was like, I don't know, back then I guess getting in and being able to say that I was in a PhD program was more important than actually like loving where I was at. It it was almost like it was just a step that I knew I needed to take and that I had told myself I needed to take and all my worth was based on making that next step. So by whatever means necessary, I was going to get there. Uh, yeah, so I applied to five schools. That was around November, December of 2018. Okay. And thought I did pretty well on my my uh, statements and everything. And in January is when you start to hear back from schools about getting an interview. And I didn't hear anything. And I was like, (laughs) kind of, yeah, yeah. I was confused. And I, I was trying not to be... I didn't want to be like you know thinking I was a guaranteed applicant or anything like that. You know, I definitely had doubts, but at the same time, you know, my letter writers had seemed supportive, and that I could do it. I knew that I had worked my butt off in undergrad. I mean, to the point of sometimes managing three jobs at once, all in research and doing a thesis at the same time, and extracurriculars trying to just do so much so that I was prepared and it got to the end of January and I didn't hear a thing and I I remember that week just being so on edge like refreshing my email so many times waiting and waiting and waiting and one school had sent like a season's greetings email or something like that and I was like oh my gosh my gosh is this it is this it (laughs) no that's not what I wanted to hear (laughs) it's not it's not it at all (laughs) and um oh actually yeah the third week of January I did get an email from a university and it was from the person that I had applied to and at one school and she had asked me some follow-up questions and I remember asking my friend, I was like, is this a good sign? Like and my friend's like, Yeah, that means she's interested. I was like, Okay, cool. So I fill out the <laughs> I fill out the the questions that she sent me and it was kind of like, you know, why are you interested in researching here and pursuing your graduate studies here? Just trying to try and get to know more about me. So I submitted them and then the next week she said, Oh, thank you. We decided to go in a different direction. And so, no. no. yeah, <laughs> that was my my last chance, because at that point, I mean, I hadn't heard from anyone else. It took me, I think, a good week to realize, like, OK, Bri, like you didn't get one at all. Like you're not even being considered for these programs. And it it hurts again. Yeah, that but that hurt was like a hurt like no other. I think I had experienced at that time. Because I felt like, I mean, I let myself down. I was so angry with myself. So I was like, oh, my God, Brie, like, you're so stupid. Like, how could you not get into these programs? And then, like, feeling like I had let everyone down. And But that's not never really
1: the case, is it? Because it depends on so many things. It's usually not even your application wasn't good enough. It's like the other lady had answered you. They were going in a different direction at that point in time. There might have been someone else who slightly fitted that much better to them than you did. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're not qualified or not worth it or that you've let anyone else down. And did you experience anyone in your surrounding? Like you said, I felt like I let down my family.
0: They didn't experience it that way, did they? No, they didn't experience it. I mean, they were all just down because I was down, <laughs> Um but I did. I mean, it's so hard when you put that pressure on yourself to not feel like your whole world has just collapsed, and it's because, you know, I wasn't good enough, and it was just, oh, it was so bad, especially that week of finding out, and I remember, um, I don't know, it was hard for a few different reasons. Like, one, it was my senior year of undergrad so everyone is kind of finding where they're going to go afterwards and every day I swear I would go on social media every day and it would be someone posting about them getting into medical school or law school or this program and that program they're going to get a job at google or (laughs) all these big names and That hurts too. I was just there. Yeah. And I was just like, I want to be happy for these people, but I'm bitter. I was so mad. (laughs) And my mom at the time, she was working um, another job to help me pay for my applications. And that hurt because I felt like she was doing these additional shifts for nothing. Like that money went to nothing. And yeah, it was a hard time. But it does mean that she believed in you, right? And that you
1: are capable of doing it.
0: Definitely. It was a funny time, too, because my parents didn't know anything really about the PhD application process. And so <laughs> they're like, they didn't accept you. What? Are they crazy? You know? <laughs> um, just I think they're nice. right. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> well, I mean, again, it's, a, it's an interesting story because I'm trying to figure out what part to tell of it next. But... I did ask for feedback on my applications kind of to see why. I mean, I think it's a very natural thing. Like you want to know why you got rejected after you get over the initial like hurt and sadness and you just get angry and you're like, wait, why, (laughs) why did this not happen for me? And I think one school said it was my GRE exam scores were not up to par, which (laughs) frankly they weren't. So I, I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. Um, not that that has anything to do with how well I would have done in the program, but if that's your criteria, like, fine. And then two schools told me that um, my letters of recommendation weren't strong. Oh. And, yeah. <laughs> I know, this is, like, the un- untold story, because I don't think I've ever, like, <laughs> told the-, the full story like this. But, yeah, so... Two of my, um, two of the schools I applied to both had the same feedback for me. And that was that my letters of recommendation either weren't strong or varied in strength. Um, one told me to be more selective in who I asked to recommend me. And I was like, what? You know, everyone I had asked, I had worked with for years. And so that was a whole nother layer. So you were surprised. Yeah. Because I was like, Not only do these schools not think that I'm good enough, someone that I trusted also doesn't think that I'm good enough. And instead of telling me, they wrote a letter that wasn't good and that ended up being a reason why, you know, that like. It would have been better for this person to say like, hey, I don't feel like I know you
1: well enough or for this particular thing, I wouldn't know if you would fit such a program. So why don't you ask someone else, right? Instead of actually writing a letter that doesn't help you in any way.
0: Yeah. And when I found that out, I don't know, I felt like someone had intentionally like almost sabotaged me because you're right. Like you can, you could have just said, no, I had other people to go to, (laughs) you know, like I, and I felt like I knew everyone, all of my letter writers well enough that they could have told me, you know, I don't think it would have hurt then, but this hurt more, you know, like getting that feedback that they had written a bad letter. But now with this feedback,
1: you actually knew that you could change that, right? You could ask someone else, get a better recommendation out
0: there and try again. In theory, yeah, that's what would have happened. And I would have attributed the the failure that I was feeling to an external source, but I didn't. I still internalized it. I still felt like it was me. I don't know. It was really hard. But I remember one of the pivotal kind of moments was my friends invited me over to their apartment. And I think we were eating like enchiladas (laughs) my friend had made and just sitting around and it was January. So everyone's kind of putting their, their goals for the new year. And we were just talking about, you know, like if we could be doing anything, what would we be doing? And that was the first time I feel like I had sat down and asked myself what I really wanted. And a PhD was something I wanted, but there are so many other things at 21 that you want in the life <laughs> so I I remember sitting there and just writing this list of things that I thought I could do that weren't related to psychology and this brings me back to the point that you were you were asking about were you ever just done with psychology this is that point this is <laughs> the point okay, I, yeah I Sat down the list and I was like, well, if I'm not good at psychology, I don't want to do anything remotely related to psychology, which was me being a little bit dramatic, <laughs> but. Right. It was, it was a momentary thing. <laughs> yeah. It was a momentary thing. It was kind of just like, I'm not good at this. Why would I keep doing something that I'm not good at? And I always have this internal battle of like, you know, the things that are worth getting in life, like, they don't come easily. Like You have to work for them. And I fully believe that. But also, if God and the universe are telling you that you know, something's not for you, maybe you should go in a different direction. So I'm balancing these two schools of thought in my head. Like, what do I do? <laughs> um, and it's funny. It's so, it it's happy, like, that I get to look back on it now, like, with a smile and be like, you know, because Definitely. everything did work out in the end. But trust me, it was not a smiling time. Like it was, a, it was a dark time. That is, you know, the end of January 2019, beginning of February. I'm like, Brie, you got to start looking for jobs. You're graduating soon. And it all just came so quickly. I felt like I didn't have a, a moment to, like, breathe and accept that I, like, didn't get accepted. I just had to move on to the next thing, which was now I have to apply for jobs. Like, now I have to not psychology-related, because I said I was done. <laughs> um, and I applied for jobs that were – they were so random. I don't know really what was going through my head. But a lot of me – a part of me liked communications. And, again, I guess everything comes full circle, because now it's, like, the YouTube channel and the blog and stuff. You know, I still got to to mesh those passions. But I just thought, you know, I'm going to go into – communications or like television, like news anchoring or um media, like social media management, things like that were kind of jobs I was looking into. But never feeling completely happy with that decision. I still wanted to do psychology. I just, I didn't want to fail again. To me, how stupid would I look? Like, you know, I didn't get into a program and here I am trying to get a job in the same field. Like I just... I couldn't get over that. Like, I really thought that there was no hope for me afterwards. And I think it speaks to, you know, my, it's a little bit of immaturity, like at that age, you know, like thinking that failure is the end all be all, or it wasn't even failure. It was just, you know, not getting accepted, but I didn't have anything else. I felt like going for me at the time. Um, So anyway, I applied for jobs, didn't get any interviews. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why I thought it would be so easy with no experience. All my experience is in psychology and public health. (laughs) So I don't know why I thought I could just easily transition over to another field um, and get a job on the spot, but I didn't get any interviews for that either. (laughs) And, um, And then it was already the end of the year? Then it's about March middle of march i'm not getting anything i decided to apply to two psychology positions or no, know i applied to about three or four and got interviews like right off the bat because they were psychology and that's where my experience right? was mm-hmm. i was like okay if i have to if i have to do this i I'll, I'll do it it's just a job whatever and i applied for a job in new york city one in boston massachusetts one in miami florida so like kind of these big cities and then one down the street in raleigh north carolina with that being not my last choice based on the job but it was my last choice based on location 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 again yeah i'm like you know i'm 21 i'm gonna go explore the world i would from this small town I went to college 35 minutes from that small town like I'm ready to go and explore and do things long story short I ended up applying to this job in North Carolina the fit was undeniable like it was everything that I would have wanted to do and I remember like walking into the interview and it was a four-hour interview process for this job and that's where I currently work now um And it was like a four-hour process. I was like, these people are crazy. (laughs) But it's like 30-minute interviews back to back to back. And every time I met with someone different, they were just so... Excited to have me there. They were so positive. They would look over my resume and be like, wow, you're so qualified. And I was just like, all right, that sounds good. Finally, some positive feedback. Yeah. I was like, this is (laughs) exactly after months of negative feedback. And especially in this field that I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I, I ended up getting the job, which was great. It turned out to be a great. Which is why you're still there. Yes. <laughs> and it was doing, um, working on evaluating programs for school based and community based mental health. So a lot to do with youth and kids as communities of color and other marginalized communities getting to learn what liberates them, literally. So that was, it was so in my wheelhouse of what I wanted to do. And from there, I decided to apply again to PhD programs in psychology because my experience at my job. Because you had all of this positive energy, right? And you felt like you were qualified again. Yeah, it was the first time I felt like I was... I mean, even applying my first time around, I didn't have that support. Like, I, I thought I was qualified just because I thought that I could do it. I didn't have people telling me, oh, yes, you can do it. When I went and I got this job and i had only been working there for three months by the time application season rolls around again. And in that three months, they were so positive and so affirming. They wanted to help me. They helped me apply to conferences to present my work. They helped me learn how to get published. They showed me everything I needed to know and to do. And they had such they gave me so much encouragement that I didn't even know existed like they were just so they were rooting for me and it meant a lot to me because they were all psychologists and I was like well they think that I could do it <laughs> um it's a bit different than mom's opinion because they're actually from the same field yes, right yes and my boss actually one of the things that she shared with me during when I interviewed at this company she told me she's a clinical psychologist and she told me she had the exact same story so she had applied her undergrad and didn't get in she did a year working and then she applied again and got in somewhere and so for her it was like she got to pour into me who had such a similar background and it was just like a getting to see where she was at despite getting rejected her first time and now she's like director of an entire program she's like in her 30s and she's like directing an entire program she has her PhD you would never know that she'd ever experienced rejection in her life I was just like, wow, like, you know, my mindset was beginning to change a lot. Um, yeah, and so I ended up applying again and this time applying to places that not just based on location or based on if I thought I could get in, but places that I really thought I could make an impact and that could help me make the impact that I wanted to in the world. Like my mindset was so different the second time around. And it was also... So you were aiming higher. I was. I was aiming higher. I was aiming, like, more authentically, I felt like. I wasn't aiming just to get in because no longer did a PhD define, like, who I was. It was just something to do. And the year, well, at that point, the six months or so of working had told me or had taught me that, like, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm not in a PhD program right now and look at all the stuff that I've been
1: able to do. So how many applications did you then send the second time around? And how many
0: answers did you get? So that time I applied to 11 uh, because I was like, wow. five is not enough. <laughs> um, Impressive. Yeah, it was perks of having a job then too. It was like, oh, I can actually, you know, like help pay for these. It wasn't all like on my mom or on, you know, making a college wage salary. Like I was able to to support myself a little bit more. So I applied to 11 and I got nine interview requests or invitations. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Well done. Mm-hmm. So that was such an experience. I remember I cried like at the fifth one, I like started crying when he called me on the phone. It's was like, Hey, we'd like to invite you for an interview. And it was the way that he invited me. He was like, I know you probably have so many other interviews on this date, but, you know, if you could make ours, like, it would be... We'd really appreciate that. And I was like, not only do you think I'm qualified, but you think others think I'm qualified. It was just like, this is so different than last year. <laughs> um.
1: So, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. So you got into Columbia University. Yeah. Congratulations. Um. But, again very different than you might have imagined um, starting a PhD, because you're actually doing it remotely. Mm-hmm. I'm looking into your bedroom now uh, in North Carolina, right? Yes. And not from campus of the university. So w- how has it been going so far? Um, what about
0: expectations you had? And yeah, tell me, how is it going? It's been a roller coaster. it's been... When I first found out that we would be, because that was, you know, I got accepted. All of this happened so fast. I got accepted in February on Valentine's Day. I was so excited. (laughs) And I don't, I had only spent like a day or two in New York City before then. So just thinking about like what life would be like in the city is just like so exciting to me. And I remember the day I found out I got accepted, I was actually interviewing at another school um and so I went and took a phone call out in the hallway when he told me I got accepted in the Columbia and I was like ah I'm so excited um <laughs> did you finish the other interview I did you? I did but I was so antsy <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um and I went and I that interview happened to be like two hours away from where my parents lived and I was so excited that I just drove the whole two hours back to where my parents lived I surprised them I told them I got into Columbia and they were just ecstatic. Like my mom was like running around the house. She's like cheering. She's so happy. Um, nice. and I was like, we have to book a flight to New York City right now. I want to go see it right now. <laughs> and luckily flying from North Carolina to New York City is usually pretty cheap. We booked flights for two weeks away. We went to visit the city. I'm just so excited. I'm happy. Like, so when was this exactly? In what month, what year are we now? <laughs> 2020, February 2020 is when I got accepted. The first week of March, okay. I'm in New York City visiting. And we are sitting in a cafe, like in Harlem. I'm, again, I'm just like wide-eyed looking at everything. The news comes on and it says there's been a case of coronavirus in Manhattan. And at that point, we didn't really know like what COVID was. Um, what a that yeah. mean? Yeah, right? and it's like, yeah. you know... I feel like I remember when they told us that there had been a case of Ebola in the United States and it kind of blew over. Like it was just one person, you know, they got quarantined, everything was fine. So I wasn't scared or anything. I remember that. It was just my parents were making jokes about it. Like, oh, this is New York City. Things spread fast. Like, (laughs) but it was kind of like, whatever. And time went on and it got more serious. And by... May, I was getting really concerned about what it would look like, um, in the fall. And we hadn't heard anything from the school about if things were going to be in person or not in person. And finally, over the summer, they tell us that everything's going to be remote. And yeah, that was hard to hear. Another bummer. Yeah. I was like, I worked so hard. I mean, when I was applying, I, Put my social life on hold. I felt like to work my 40 hours a week to do the volunteering and then to work on my applications. I didn't have much time for anything else. And so I knew that when March came and hopefully I had an acceptance, I'd be able to live again. And like, so I already had that experience of being like in quarantine for the longest, but still hoping I would go to New York City. And then I realized that wasn't happening. And not only was that not happening, I had to move in with my parents. Um, because my lease was up where I was living and it didn't make sense to keep paying for rent at a place where I'm just going to be sitting in. Like I can do that at home. So anyway, it was definitely disappointing because people tell you about how isolating a PhD can be and about how your cohort is someone that, you know, you're going to lean on them for support and knowing all the expectations that I had for myself and wanting to thrive in New York City and wanting to be a part of so many different things. It was definitely a bummer. So right now it's going okay, but I have my ups and downs. Like sometimes I really wish that I could be in the city and things were just normal and I could have a social life again and not be in the same room that I grew up in 24-7. Yeah, and it seems like my professor, so my advisor is also on sabbatical right now. So he chose to go on sabbatical, I think just given the circumstances. Um, but I did feel like I was just kind of on an island, like alone. I was like, I'm starting this process, but it looks and feels nothing like I had imagined it would be. I mean, Columbia is a great school, and I wanted to go here 100%. But I also a big draw of the university was that it was in the city and that I would be, you know, somewhere so lively and happy. And that's not the case. So, and like you say that it's not only doing the
1: research and writing your papers on your computer from your home office, but it's also about not being able to meet your peers and it's a, and other parts of student life. So I'm very sorry that you don't get that to experience that yet, but let's hope that soon, things will start slowly to open up again and that maybe some classes will take place so that you'll at least be able to live in the city and uh, slow steps into that bigger student life and in the big city that you were hoping for.
0: Yeah, definitely. I hope so. And Zoom makes things, you know, better. One of the things that I dislike is that most of my classes are asynchronous. So I, I have one class where I even talk in so it's it is really isolating because most of my classes are self-paced and we don't meet regularly um but at the same time it makes you have to step out of your comfort zone and be more intentional about relationships that you're pursuing pursuing and i don't know there's been pluses that have come for it or there's been okay pluses that have come from it i feel like i'm glad you're still able to see those
1: positive things too and not only think about the negative things yeah um and that's what we're constantly trying to do and that's what this show is also for to ask people okay so you've had so many rejections and setbacks and bummers but in the end you are where you want it to be and even though it's not the situation doesn't allow you to do it as you expected it is most likely going to get there because you have another five years to go
0: right (laughs) that is what keeps me going (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let me ask you another question. Um, As you've said, and as I've seen on your resume, uh, you're doing a lot of things next to grad school, right? You're working in two research labs, you're volunteering, you have a job. Um, But I'm particularly interested in hearing more about that project uh, that you're doing, like Black Mental Health and becoming Dr. Baker. What is your message here? What is it about?
0: Yeah. um, Hmm. Which one to start with first? I mean... (laughs) Becoming Dr. Baker, I actually started it, and I think this is a testament of how supportive my work environment was, because I started Becoming Dr. Baker as a blog post or a blog on LinkedIn um, in November of last year. So yeah, it's almost been a year now. And congratulations. thank you. But it's so interesting that I felt confident enough to start something called Becoming Dr. Baker when I hadn't even gotten any interviews or acceptances yet. Um, but it was a point where I was like, you know, this is something I want to do. I think that I'll do it eventually. I don't know when, but here's my process and kind of just documenting what it's like to go through the application process and now what it's like to go through as an actual student Um, But the message is, I guess, that as you are pursuing your PhD, you're becoming and you're pursuing so many other things as well. It's such a, a growing time. I mean, it's a span of like five, six, seven years. So there are so many other things that you become in that time, aside from becoming a doctor. So for me, it's like, you know, I'm becoming an advocate. I'm becoming a woman. I mean, I feel like I was just Sometimes I still feel like I'm a child, (laughs) but, you know, growing and learning and adulting, I guess. (laughs) Well, I really do like your YouTube channel and I would recommend
1: everyone to go and check it out. That is Becoming Dr. Baker on YouTube and also subscribe. And while you're at it, subscribing to your channel, uh, you should know that we also have uh, a YouTube channel on on there with some more videos besides only the podcast. Just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> and then what about
0: Black in Mental Health? Yeah, Black in Mental Health is... Um, it's amazing. I'm really proud of it. It uh, On Twitter, there's been a lot of movements for Black in X. So it'll be like Black in Physics, Black in Cardio, Black in Neuro, which was one of the first and, I mean, most successful movements is just all about connecting Black people who are in these fields of study. So for us, Black and Mental Health was not only for students or researchers or professors, but anyone who is practicing mental health, um, healthcare providing, and also anyone who's an advocate. Um, So because I realized from my own experience that just because you're not in a program or like in an academic institution, you can still be deeply invested in mental health or in any of these fields. So black and mental health, it's all about connecting all those people, bridging the gaps between research and practice and advocacy and really just starting a movement of community um, increasing representation and visibility because a lot of times, I mean, Black PhDs in psychology make up about 4% of the psychology workforce, which is astonishing. And I read this other statistic yesterday that said um, 95% of mental health providers in New York City are Caucasian. So having, despite, you know, <laughs> despite Blacks and African-Americans Experiencing mental health issues or complications at the same rates, like we're not represented, we're treated unfairly. There's so many large disparities in access and in care and quality. Um, so the Twitter movement of Black and mental health is just addressing those inequalities, fostering community between those who are trying to change and increase accessibility, and also just getting the word out that we exist because uh, now, especially with there being such a call for anti-racist education and everyone wants to be, you know, diverse and inclusion, equity, and blah, blah, blah. Like it's great, but we're finding that a lot of the work that black people have already been doing in these spaces are getting brushed off by, by more, accepted names or we're not getting acknowledged for the work that we've been doing for decades and decades and decades. Now people just want to act like it all of a sudden exists when we've been doing it for so long. So for me, increasing visibility was a really big thing. Um, having a stake and being like... And that's working out quite well. Yeah, it is. It is. We were so excited with the outcome. Our team is about... I want to say maybe there's about eight of us who kind of worked to put this together. And in the beginning, you know, you don't know how it's going to go. And I remember those initial conversations where you're like, should it be a day? Should it be a week of black and mental health? You know, is it sustainable? Do we want to just keep it going? Like all of those things and now seeing where it's at, we have close to 4,000 followers on Twitter now. Um, Celebrities like MC Hammer have tweeted us and retweeted us and supported us. And we've just gotten so many, so many positives have come from it. So much support and so many people thanking us or just being grateful for that space and that it exists because nothing like it existed before. Cool. So like I said, a lot of projects, thankfully all
1: quite successful But then the question is, and maybe you're able to give some tips or recommendations on how do you manage to juggle all of these activities at the same time?
0: Yeah, I'm still figuring it out. (laughs) I mean, I think one thing that when people start PhD programs, they have to juggle a lot in terms of emotional things and also getting acclimated to their new settings. And those, that's something I didn't have to do. Like, I moved back in with my parents. I'm doing class online, which I'm not running from class to class. I'm not taking the train through the city to classes. Like, everything is right here. Most of my time is managed on my own terms, which is really nice. Um, so I feel like one of the perks of online learning and asynchronous learning is me getting to dictate when I do certain things. Um which is an advantage and a disadvantage, because sometimes I definitely don't do things um, in the most time-effective manner. But I think it has to do with just passion will always drive you. So the things that I'm doing, I'm really invested in emotionally. I think that they can help a lot of people the feedback that I receive from the YouTube channel and from black and mental health are so positive. It keeps me going. Like knowing that I'm making a difference keeps me going. And I don't know. I get like, it's not every day, but those random texts or, or messages on social media that I get that are like, Hey, you know, I really enjoyed this or you kept me going or you inspired me to apply to programs after being rejected. Like those things mean so much to me that I don't know I guess it has to do with passion but it also has to do with boundaries because I know I can't do it all and there have been weeks where I'm definitely tough on myself for not doing things when I want them done but for the most part to
1: not overdo it
0: yeah yeah and it's hard and it's definitely a lesson that I'm learning one of the things too was as much as I had made peace with not getting accepted the first time around, a part of me felt like I had to play catch up almost in a way um, for that year that I missed. So still trying to adhere to my timelines <laughs> that I had set for myself, which are unhealthy, but I couldn't break it for the longest time. I'm still working on it. So, Yeah. That's all right. And
1: um, everyone will figure it out along the way too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, you will have to decide what projects uh, are doable or, you know, still worth it to work on or not. And that might change in the next few years. And that's all right. Um, you'll get better at it, at yeah. letting go things yeah. at some point too. Okay. And then I actually got to my last question for today and that... Um, When you will be done with your PhD, what are you going to do with that?
0: (laughs) I, my hope is that I do something revolutionary. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, I know that my path is going to be something that's innovative and that's not going to be, I feel like it's going to be something that I invent and that I create for myself, which is exciting. (laughs) I mean, I don't think, I don't, I've never had dreams of like, yes, I'm going to go and, Work at this university, or I'm going to go get a tenure track professor position. Like, I don't know necessarily my five year plan, but I do know the impact that I hope to make in five years. And I want it to be huge. I want it to be global. I want to be able to infiltrate media because that still is a passion of mine. So, whether it's, you know, communicating on TV or through my YouTube channel and social media about mental health and specifically mental health concerns for marginalized populations. I want to have, I want to continue leveraging those platforms and hopefully in five years it will have grown from where it is now. I'm happy with where it's at now, but to think of where it could go is really exciting. Especially when you see
1: how far you've come in this one year, right? Since the rejections until where you are now, so much as possible. Uh, So that would be great to soon, very soon,
0: see more of you, maybe even on this side of the world on TV, who knows? (laughs) Oh my God, that would be amazing. (laughs) That would be so amazing. (laughs) All right, let me cheer to that. Yes. Do you still have
1: some left? Yes, I do. Cheers. (laughs) And that then brings me to my final five short questions. But here, I'm only going to allow you to answer in two sentences each. Okay. So are you ready?
0: Yes. <laughs> cool. What was the most important conference that you've been to so far? The UNC Minority Health Conference. Where was that? That was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina this past year. So talking about health disparities, mental health, reproductive health, all of it related to minority health. Interesting. <laughs> And very short. Thanks for that. Yes. <laughs> Have you received a scholarship? Not yet. <laughs> um, but I am proud that my PhD is fully funded. So we'll, we'll go from there. <laughs> and Right. Yeah. Definitely a good start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what everyone needs. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field so far?
0: I think... Oh, this is hard. It is. I know. <laughs> <laughs> In my field... Black and mental health, I feel like, has been something that's the most tangible contribution to the field. But I also think that as a Black woman, sometimes just my presence in in the field is a large contribution because, like I said, there's not many of us.
1: Right. That's a big legacy then. (laughs) I hope.
0: (laughs) No, that's great. Who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Probably my best friend, Jasmine Brooks. You can find her on Twitter as well, but she's a clinical psychology PhD candidate. And she's not only impressed me with what she's doing, but with the support that she's been able to provide to someone like me, who's also entering in the field. So probably her. That's good. We'll make sure that she listens
1: to this this episode. (laughs) And then the very last one, how do you relax if you even do so after a hard day of work?
0: I relax usually by playing with my dog playing fetch or going on adventures around town. (laughs) She loves the car. So anytime that we can ride with the windows down and have her head hanging out the window is usually pretty relaxing for me. Sounds like a good life. Yeah. She has a great life. She has a great life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much
1: for your time, Brianna. I wish you the best of luck with everything and especially with the academic journey. Uh, And I'd also like to thank our listeners. If you'd like to hear more about Brianna, make sure that you check out her blog and YouTube channel, Becoming Dr. Baker. And while you're on it, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast as well, which is what are you going to do with that, of course. Cool. So, wow, so many projects and so many things happening at the same time. I'm impressed. I wanted to ask you about the research labs. Is that something you're still working on?
0: Yes. Um... So, I'm in two right now. And well, one is kind of on hold because my advisor is on sabbatical and he's the director of the research lab. Right. So, that's the identity, stigma, and intersectionality lab. So, that's kind of on hold. But I'm thankful for that because he, him being on sabbatical, made me reach out to another professor (laughs) who I was interested in, um, who's in the School of Social Work, and she's doing work um, with virtual reality technology and mental health, which is just like, what? That's crazy. Um, Interesting. Yeah, like you can put on the goggles and you enter this world where you are like a... I think he starts off at six or seven years old and you're like a seven-year-old black boy and you kind of move about the world as him from his point of view and you go through these different scenarios like having your teacher discriminate against you, to applying for jobs, to eventually being harassed by the police. So it's kind of, I mean, it's really deep, but it helps build, I hate this word, but empathy kind of for the Black experience. So that's what we're working on right now, which is really cool.